0: Hey guys, and welcome to the Huntin' Land Podcast, where we cover rut reports, waterfowl migrations, land market dynamics, habitat management, and anything else that the American landowner or wannabe landowner might want to know. I'm Joe Baia, and I am here with Clint Flowers, an accredited land consultant. Clint, tell me about the accredited land consultant
1: designation. What does that mean? Well, it's a designation awarded by the Realtors Land Institute. Which is affiliated with the National Association of Realtors, which many people are familiar with, but they're not as familiar or familiar at all with their land arm. And what that means is that as a land professional, I have achieved a certain level of education and experience. Well, Clint, you and
0: I, in the uh, when we created this podcast, what we were looking at is state of Alabama in particular, where we where we both do most of our hunting, is has a. a seven different rut zones so that means that a hunter who's willing to travel can hunt the rut some phase of the rut from opening day of bow season to the end of rifle season in february almost a four month period that you can hunt the rut but also you and i love to duck hunt maybe even like it more than deer hunting we don't get as good of a flyway here in alabama but we do have some good duck hunting so I know you and I want to keep tabs on what's going on with with rutting whitetails and what's going on with waterfowl in season. Um, I'd like to keep an eye on the doves as they come in in the fall and, and the gobblers as they're gobbling in the spring. So we're going to be talking about those things each week. But you and I have both made a career out of the outdoors. We're making a living in some capacity off the outdoors and the natural resources that that we've got here uh, in the south, so it's it's awesome. So one of the other things we want to discuss on this podcast are some of the market dynamics, the changes in the land market, and things related to habitat management for the for that wildlife. So let's talk a little bit about the land market dynamics. What well, what are we
1: talking about when we when we get into that discussion? It's a it's a broad topic, uh, but when I hear that, you know, in my mind we're talking about supply and demand. Uh, What trends are we seeing? You know, what are people really requesting overall from a buyer perspective? Uh, What are concerns that sellers are um, encountering? Uh, What are challenges we've seen in the financing arena? Uh, What are interest rates doing? How does that affect the ability to to buy land? You know, what are some concerns and things you need to have in place or ready to go to finance land? You know, timber sales. um, Commodity values. That's right.
0: Anything that changes on a regular basis uh, that affects the values of land, uh, it affects the ability for buyers to purchase land, and sellers to sell land, um, you know, anything in regards to the macro and micro economic factors. What that,
1: adds value to the land? What detracts? You know, what's your land worth? What should you expect to spend on land? All those questions that we, we hear every day.
0: Right. And as we get into habitat management, not only are we talking about improving the land to attract more wildlife and have more hunting opportunities, but also improving the land so that it's more marketable, so that it is uh, more valuable to a potential buyer, uh, more valuable for a someone who's ready to sell. Well, let's talk about habitat management a little bit. You know, we hear the term wildlife management a lot, and those are the things that people are doing to attract more wildlife and um, and hold more game on their property, uh, bring more game on their property. But habitat management is a little more encompassing than that. When we say habitat management, what kind of things are you doing and seeing done on the tracks that you sell on a, on a regular basis to improve the habitat, and add more value to, to the land, not only through um, increasing the amount of wildlife they have, but also increasing the...
1: The inherent value of the land easiest way to explain it is is the things that when you pull onto the property that has that wow factor it says man that's pretty you know and that's typically going to be related to maintenance in the form of um, understory maintenance which we'll learn a lot more about soon so uh, that be and that be like for improving
0: timber right
1: yeah but it's typically it's done under timber but it's for the benefit of the wildlife right because there are certain times where the timber is big enough it doesn't necessarily need that understory reduction anymore but it does still benefit the wildlife greatly but you think about fire chemical applications a lot of things we'll get into building roads that's right i mean access to the property is very important and and i don't mean to it to the border i mean through it you know showing a piece of property with no roads or bad roads is kind of like trying to show a house with no doors you're just kind of looking in from the outside so it's important to know where your value lies you know what should i be doing on my property or what should i be looking for on property that i'm looking to acquire in terms of value It's not just about dirt or location It's, you know, there's, this is all a big puzzle piece Where we, we bring it all together for a total cumulative value
0: Well, you're talking about timber You're talking about access Another really important uh, discussion in the habitat management realm is water So what are some some things we're going to be talking about on the show In regards to uh, water management?
1: In regards to water, you know, we'll talk about the value added from water features Whether they're present on the site Or something you want to construct on site Like a lake uh, you know and that can be a fishing lake small pond for kids uh, all the way down to just a duck pond or some form of wetland that adds to your wildlife you know carrying capacity and also just giving you a, a waterfowl feature which is a is a rare commodity in our area great i'm glad you brought up
0: creating wetlands and creating duck habitat because that's what we're going to be talking about today is how to create more duck habitat we've got thomas mormon he's a chief scientist with Ducks Unlimited on the phone. Thomas is going to get into a little bit about how we can hold more ducks, attract more ducks and, uh, you know, just improve the overall carrying capacity of the wetlands we got on our property. Tom, tell us a little bit to start off about how ducks are doing for 2018. Uh, what's the hatch been like and what do you expect the season to be like?
2: Sure. About August, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service releases their annual population survey. And this year, for the first time in a while, both the wetland counts and the actual pair counts were down for most species. Um, hunters should not panic. Uh, relative to that and here's why overall populations of waterfowl are still very healthy and most species are still well above their long-term average population levels likewise wetland habitat conditions while definitely drier especially in places like saskatchewan and the eastern dakotas the number of wetlands on the landscape was still also above long-term average So what do we expect out of that kind of a situation this year? Um, You know, in waterfowl management and in waterfowl populations, there's never really an average fall flight. Um, But if you were going to characterize it this year, it's just going to kind of be right in the middle. Uh, I think there was definitely some waterfowl production. It was not a bumper, you know, booming kind of year, but it also wasn't a complete bust for prairie nesting ducks Put that together with already fairly high populations that carried over from last winter into spring. Uh, I look for, you know, a decent fall flight. And that, of course, hinges on where you are in the flyway and whether or not, for those of us in the deep south anyway, we get the the necessary weather to push those birds down here. If we do, I think it'll be pretty good. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. A couple species that are still struggling a bit, pintails and scalp both kind of sputtering along and we got our eyes on those and folks are studying trying to figure out exactly what the you know what what can we do to sort of increase those populations. Overall though, ducks look pretty good. If you're a goose hunter, it's gonna be a tough year. There's still gonna be a plenty of geese and especially snow geese. But geese had an unusual circumstance this year when they got to the Arctic ice out was really really late. Uh, What that means is typically this year it was probably around June 10 to 15 before the ice was gone. Uh, What that means is the geese really didn't make much of a nesting effort and so there are virtually no young birds in the population this year. Uh, That means we'll all be hunting adult geese mostly and adult geese are a lot smarter so it'll be a little more challenging to get in the decoys.
0: Well there's there's not a whole lot more exciting than seeing a, a speckle belly come into some decoys and a bird that big coming at you, you know, it's, it's really exciting to see that coming. But Tom, I, I just, while I've got you and I love talking to scientists, so I just want to kind of go round robin with you and ask you a few really common questions that that I see a lot. So tell me, do ducks and geese for that matter, do they mate for life?
2: Good question. Uh, ducks do not. And ducks, form what we would characterize as annual pair bonds Uh, so pair bond will form depending on the species in winter or early spring and then the female goes off to nest and about the time she's midway through incubation for most ducks the male departs Uh, he may go enter his annual wing molt or he may hang around and try to secure other breedings geese on the other hand are a little different they do mate uh more or less for life now they'll remate if a mate gets killed and divorce so to speak is not unheard of among geese but generally speaking we look at geese and say yeah there's a bird that's going to mate more or less for life whereas ducks it's an annual uh, pairing and each year could be a different mate
0: it reminds me of a good joke a lot of divorces cost so much money why's that joe because they're worth it <laughs> <laughs> I guess they are. If you're a mallard, <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, let's jump into a little bit of uh, of habitat management. You know, one of the one of the things I think all landowners, potential landowners, the holy grail is is trying to have a property that increases in value and and also increases in wildlife, more things for us to hunt. You know, a lot of folks have wetlands on their property. So, my my question for you is, is as it relates to duck habitat. If a person has wetlands on their property and they have have ducks or don't have ducks, is there anything they can do to enhance those wetlands to either attract ducks or, uh, or really just to attract ducks and attract waterfowl? Anything they can do to increase the amount they have there already or, or bring in ducks if they don't have any at all?
2: there are some things you can do and it kind of depends a bit on your wetland type and what i mean by that for instance again focusing maybe on the deep south here where we may have a cypress or tupelo break okay there's not much you can do with that kind of wetland because it's deep and pretty permanent and but the wetlands that you can do something with tend to be those uh, we would call them seasonal you know places that you can flood up set aside areas and fields low swales, those kinds of things, even agricultural fields where you can have uh, levees and water control structures in place to help flood and retain water. Those kinds of habitats, you can, particularly if you can get equipment in there, a small tractor and a disc, the easiest thing to do is get in there and say early summer after it's dry enough to access with equipment and disc if it's possible, and what that does disturbs the soil and typically what we see when that happens is not to use too many sort of biological terms here but we get annual plants big seed producers things like wild millets and those kinds of things that are really valuable duck foods so in that kind of a situation you can get in there and do those kinds of manipulations you can sometimes accomplish the same thing by carefully uh, drawing it down in spring or summer that means dewatering it at the right time of year So you can do those kinds of things. Now, I also get asked a lot, what can I plant for ducks? And I answer that a couple of ways. One is, if you have the right kind of wetland system, you may not need to plant anything because the native plants that come in, again, the wild millets and those kinds of things, can provide a heck of a lot of food that's very, very attractive to ducks. Alternatively, if your site's really struggling a bit, again, if you can get equipment in there some of the state wildlife management agencies even do this on their, their public hunting areas is they'll rotate. And so they'll do hot crops. Typically corn is favored and they'll take a year or a part of a wetland and plant corn. And then the other part might be just dissed up and come up in wild millet, hopefully. Um, so that can work. We call that hot cropping. And again, birds will access it if you flood that corn. What does that um, mean,
0: Tom? Hot crops
2: hot crops high energy okay. uh, corn being loaded with carbohydrates and for for waterfowl in winter basically they are really just doing one thing they're just trying to survive from the time they arrive to the time they have to depart and that translates into carrying an energy reserve that's mostly fat and the way birds put on fat is they eat a lot of carbohydrates just you know it works the same way for humans unfortunately <laughs> uh, if you eat too many uh, potato chips then you're likely to put on a little belly fat, and ducks do the same thing. Except for ducks, it's a matter of survival. For humans, it could be a matter of uh, heart disease, but that's a whole other story. So anyway, that that kind of a rotational situation works pretty well. Um, we always tell hunters if you're going to do that, you know, don't plant your your corn like you're trying to produce a commercial crop with real narrow row widths. Put that spacing out there about three feet, so you get a row of corn that. Has about three feet apart. Uh, what will happen is sunshine will hit the the exposed dirt below in between the rows, and you can get a really nice mix of native plants coming in there that provide food in addition to the hot crop of corn. So those are the kinds of things you can do. It really hinges. Then the other thing hinges on is having good water management control. You know, lots of us are dependent upon Mother Nature and rainfall, and that's fine. Um, if you're really into waterfowl hunting and you really got the the time, energy, and money to invest, putting a well in to enable you to flood is a really great thing to give you water when you need it. And so if we get in those dry falls and winters, you can flood up and you'll be attracting some ducks because not lots of other folks won't be having any water.
0: When it comes to flooding your own property and manipulating water, whether it's building uh, a levee, putting in a well. Are there any considerations that, that a landowner needs to have before he does something like that?
2: Yeah, there are several actually. Uh, number one is depending on the nature of the wetland habitat in question, you may or may not need a section 404 permit from the Corps of Engineers. So you should have it looked at by somebody who knows wetland regulations, that could be an NRCS, biologist, could be calling the Corps of Engineers, could be a state wildlife agency. Somebody that can give you an opinion and say, hey, yeah, you probably need to, to to go ahead and go through the permit process. A little bit onerous, but worth it because if you don't do it and you need a permit, then the Corps can come in and and cause you some heartache. So that's number one. Make sure you either need a permit or you don't. And most often you don't on, for instance, agricultural land or prior converted land, those kinds of things. You often do on those kinds of permanent wetlands, or if you're going to build a green tree in a forested wetland, uh, you'll probably need a permit. So those are one consideration there for sure. The other is water being what it is, it's really a powerful force. And so people often underestimate how powerful water can be. You want to Tend to your engineering and make sure that you size your pipes and levees appropriately. And also that you pick sites that are not prone to you know, massive amounts of water moving through that are going to either blow out your infrastructure or make it impossible to manage. So there's a little bit of site selection. Again, the best things to do there, if you have questions about those kinds of things, just consult. Uh, you can consult Nux Unlimited In your area, uh, our four regional offices are one located in uh, just outside of Jackson, Mississippi, and Ridgeland. Others, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Bismarck, North Dakota, uh, Sacramento, California. They all have expertise in that. Uh, State wildlife uh, agencies often have private lands programs and private lands biologists who can help you with that. And the NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, also has both biologists and engineers who may be able to offer some insight into that. As you know, Ducks Unlimited, we have both engineers and biologists as well. So that'd be how I'd tell people is, you know, it looks pretty simple, seems pretty simple. And sometimes it really is. I mean, sometimes it's a piece of cake and you just got to take a look at it. And if you got questions, it's best to get them answered on the, on the front end. Otherwise, you might invest a bunch of money and create yourself some problems that you got to come back and fix.
1: In terms of DU, what are some services that are available to landowners in terms of you know utilizing those experts that you mentioned and, and really getting some guidance for them?
2: Yeah, for years we had a pretty intensive private lands program in certain parts of areas that were really, really important to ducks that carried a lot of wintering ducks. Subsequently, most of those practices have been widely adopted. Uh, So we have a lot of technical material, some of it's on our website, some of it's available by request. And so what I would tell people is, you know, give us a call. Uh, Again, those regional offices are where most of our staff are located. And often we can get a biologist out there um, to meet with folks and give them some insight as to what to do, how to do it, those kinds of things. That would be the, the most useful thing that Ducks Limited can provide is engineering and or management technical assistance at this point. Uh, private lands biologists with state agencies would be generally be able to do the same thing, although our folks do waterfall habitat for a living day in and day out, and so we tend to have a little more expertise than most when it comes down to those kinds of harder questions.
0: Tom, we talked to Ted DeVos about quail property management and Ted was telling us how important your neighborhood is, uh, when it comes to quail and, you know, you can manage for quail on hundred acres if you've got the right neighbors. But if you don't, um, you need a lot more land than that to, to actually be able to hold and, uh, have a sustainable population of quail. How important is it for, uh, uh, someone who's interested in buying land that he wants to do some duck hunting on, how important is it, is his neighborhood, is he is, especially as we talk about Alabama can you I, th- I think a question that I've seen it go different ways is can you really attract ducks to a place where ducks haven't historically been
2: yeah you probably can uh, it might not be mallards per se but it might be you probably can get wood ducks and some other species in and let me just let me just sort of answer that is the neighborhood is really, really important and there, There's a couple of things to consider if you're contemplating acquisition of land specifically for waterfowl management. Uh, One is, in a perfect world, you'll be in fairly close juxtaposition to either a state or federal managed area that is mostly managed for waterfowl. And what that does is just gives you a, a core of habitat that's You know, within a least, probably at a maximum, within 25 miles. Uh, Waterfowl foraging flights are known for some species to be outwards from those kinds of areas out to about 20, 25 miles. Ideally, a little bit closer. The other consideration would be, yeah, it'd be great if you have neighbors that you can sort of collaborate and cooperate with. And everybody puts in a little bit of habitat. And what you end up with is a complex of habitat. Uh, at what I would call sort of a landscape scale. And the reason that's important is you know, picture yourself sort of flying at about 5,000 feet, riding a northwest tailwind, and you're a duck and you're looking down at a landscape, and the things that you key in on water being paramount because it reflects light and ducks can see it. And that's what ultimately likely makes them find habitats to begin with and then they come down and they look a little closer and they check them out for feeding habitat and those kinds of things and in the process some of us get lucky and have some of them check out our decoys so that kind of a neighborhood or landscape approach is really really important just like quail just like whitetail deer you know if you're trying to manage for big bucks and your neighbors are not then you're probably not going to be as successful if everybody in the neighborhood does a little bit and puts in a wetland or two or as many as you know they can afford to do and manages them intensively, your odds go up in terms of attracting a core of waterfowl that will actually spend the winter there. Uh, it's pretty easy to disturb birds and blow them out of a small area, but if they got a lot of options, the birds have a lot of options, they'll hang around and you'll get some, get some cracks at them all winter long.
0: That makes good sense. You talking about that sheen that the water creates, it just brings to mind a, uh, I was hunting a, a freshly flooded clear cut, actually. And the the water that was standing had this almost this iridescent sheen on the top of it, almost kind of like gasoline, uh, when you, if you've ever seen gasoline on water. Is, is that a factor of it being freshly flooded? I've heard people say the ducks can actually see can actually see that and they can tell the difference between something that's been freshly flooded and something that's that's sitting been sitting for a while.
2: You know what? There's two possibilities when you see that kind of a sheen on water and one is of course some sort of uh, petrochemical kind of spill happened there and is showing up in the water. More often than not though, what you're seeing there, there're a whole bunch of little organic little organisms in water, uh, the same things that actually ultimately formed oil millions of years ago mm-hmm. uh diatoms and other kinds of little critters and when they die that sheen you see on the water is just sort of a reflection of those guys and the density of those things it's not bad and it's just an organic ooze that's developing and it's just fine um now ducks keying on water what we know about that is Particularly in river-based floodplains, waterfowl really key into new water and rising water, and they like shallow water. Depth is really, really important. And so you want to have your water 12 inches or less, ideally, up to 18 might be okay. Um, If you're hunting in an impounded area, then you're not going to have much in the way of water rising or falling, and that's okay. But what you don't want to have, typically, is falling water. Ducks key in on that, and typically they'll abandon those areas. And, and we think that's because as water rises, it exposes new feeding areas, and ducks key in on it for that reason because there's new food resources becoming available. Whereas in a declining or falling river or water level, food resources are not as available, and ducks kind of key in on that and bug out and go find somewhere that looks a little better to them.
1: Would that apply to, let's say, you've got an impounded lake or pond and you've gotten some excess rains recently, but you also know you're on the front of a, of a push of birds due to weather Uh, and talking primarily in the South here. You, let's say you've got a weir box. Yeah. and I'm I'm asking for a friend as they say, Uh, (laughs) and you open that up to drop the water down to get back to that ideal level. Is that something the birds are going to see or notice during that push? Or is that a little too,
2: that's probably too fine a scale. Um, I think in that case, as long as you maintain a water level that keeps most of the food accessible, uh, it's probably okay in a small impoundment like that. What I'm talking about is more at a broader scale where, you know, you get declining water levels that birds can key on at a, what I would call again, that neighborhood or landscape scale. That would be something that might clue them in that, Hey, things are declining here. We need to go somewhere else. But an int, yeah, but an individual where you got to drop water to protect your levee or keep it from blowing, you know, going over the top of your levee, that's not going to be too big an issue on a small scale.
0: Well, Tom, it sounds like what you were saying to me is the number one thing a landowner could do with wetlands on his property is get in there when it's dry and disc it up. What else can a landowner do to manipulate his his wetlands, uh, whether they're dry or not? Is there anything in relation to uh, nesting habitat or predators uh, that they can do to to promote better waterfowl habitat and and just better waterfowl in general.
2: Well, in the deep south, of course, wood duck boxes are always an option. And what you should do if you just if you decide to put some of those out, um, the best guidance I can give you, is, and this sounds a little bit uh, counterintuitive maybe, but don't put them right out in the open. Uh, put them back, you know, in the edge of the forest along the wetland, and do make sure you put some sort of predator Uh, deterrent on them, Uh, wrap the posts in stovepipe or put sheet metal so the predators can't get up to the nest box. Um, That'll ensure that the hen can nest safely. Uh, You should also make sure that you have somewhere for that brood to go when it hatches, so you should have a shallow wetland pretty pretty close by. So you can definitely get some wood ducks, and more and more we're seeing black-bellied whistling ducks move into our part of the world, which is kind of an interesting bird. So that'd be the things that you can do to sort of boost local production of wood ducks in particular. In our part of the world, not much else really that we can do because most of our birds that we're going to harvest are going to come out of the prairies or boreal forest up north. And so we're kind of dependent upon conditions up there to get our birds down here.
1: Why do you think the whistling ducks are making such an appearance over the last few years?
2: man i don't know it's the craziest thing i've seen though in 20 now 27 years you know that used to be a really unusual bird to see i remember seeing them for the first time uh, probably in southwest louisiana where there was always a small population but now those guys are moving they're nesting here in memphis i mean they're nesting in arkansas i don't know what's up with that i think they're exploiting uh Black bellies in particular are pretty good about exploiting agricultural habitat. So maybe they're just uh, figuring out that we got some pretty good groceries in some of these flooded areas and they're moving up. I really don't know, don't have a good answer for that. Uh, Interesting bird. Most of them leave before hunting season opens, which is a little too bad because I have shot a few over the years and they're pretty darn good eating. But, um, But most of them are out of here probably even by now.
0: Well, folks, Tom Moorman, Chief Scientist at Ducks Unlimited. If you want to check out Ducks Unlimited and everything they do for waterfowl, just go to www.ducks.org. Tom, thanks for being on the show.
2: You bet. I enjoyed it. Anytime, man.
0: All right, Clint. That was a great discussion on duck habitat and how to improve it and you know everything we can do to put some more birds down. But I want to talk with you about how you can still manage your forests sustainably and have duck habitat. And one of the common misconceptions, I think, that's out there is that you can't harvest trees in a
1: wetland. You've had some experience with that, right? Right, right. And I'd I'd start with being clear that anytime you want to do that, make sure you consult with a professional that you understand what you're doing, understand the law, kind of like Tom mentioned about, you know, bringing in the core, you know, making sure what you do and don't have to have a permit for. In terms of, of silviculture, forestry, there is an exclusions to the Wetlands Act this is a very uh, layman explanation of it, but essentially you can harvest timber from a wetland. You just can't change it or stop it from being a wetland. And what that means is, is if you've got a cypress pond, for example, you can thin or harvest all the cypress out of it, but you can't then turn around and backfill it with dirt to make it a nice building lot. Mm -hmm. That part you would need a permit for.
0: Right. Well, I mean, forestry is a, it's an artful science in that way. And I think that that's, most of the outdoorsmen that I know that either own land or want to own land, they they know that forest is m- more than just trees. You know, it's made up of uh, the the air around it, the wildlife in it, the the diseases that can have an effect on it, and the people that come out there to enjoy it. And so. You do have to be cognizant of, uh, of the future anytime you're doing things. Co- using a consultant forester is, is a big part of that, I think, and making sure you talk about what are your goals for the property and what are your objectives for the property and letting them give
1: you professional advice on how to do that correctly. Correct, because there, there's different goals for everybody. It's not always uh, financial goals. It's not always a wildlife-based goal, It's typically, in our experience, a, a blend. But the main thing is you hire that professional and you tell them what your goal is and let them tailor your management plan to that. Uh, It's kind of like we've heard from several different people about how to manage for different aspects, whether that be waterfowl or quail or pure money. You've got to identify your goal, understand your goal, and then they can tailor that for you. All
0: right, folks, do you like the show? If you do, subscribe and give us a review wherever you
1: listen to podcasts. And if you don't like the show or you'd like us to email it to you, drop us a line at pros at landhunting.com. And remember, at landhunting, no G.